0: The topic for our final presentation of the year 2013, our 12th annual One Month Scholar, is Imaging, not Imagining, Imaging the Future, Jewish Art and its Role in the Future of the Jewish People. Thank you all for coming. The lights are going to be dimmed. I'm sure people will be sneaking in as well because they think we're starting at 7.30. But with that, we're going to get started with, uh, how long is it, three hours? It's about four hours. Okay. (laughs) Thank you
1: and the ones next to it go down. Speaking to the microphone, please. I, I have nothing to say yet. This is not to say all Over here? Hold on. Ah. A little bit so, they don't fall, so that you, ma'am, don't fall asleep. What? Uh, okay. Um, all right. I'm really... Um, can I have the sound? Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Everybody hear me? I'm speaking into the microphone right. as near. advise me. Um, let me find my arrow, <coughs> and then we can be underway. Okay. Um, again, as always, as I said numerous times, and today especially, my humble gratitude to Ari for his yeah. vision and the execution thereof. I asked some people at, um, at Shir Hamalot, to have a um, look around in shul yesterday morning at 8.30 when a lot of you showed up, which was lovely. And I said, if you want to see a visionary, you look at Ari, right? I mean, true, true visionary. Amazing. I thank Marianne for her exquisite follow-through. Nira, <laughs> Gila, and Ayal for their hospitality. And... and Sincerely, each and every one of you who ent- attended a talk or a class or a Torah, every rabbi who hosted me, every congregation who welcomed me, and above all, everyone who took me to lunch or dinner and talked with me, open your hearts and your homes, and I must say your minds, because I learned a tremendous amount. Mikol I gained a lot from listening to you. Open to your minds to me and my sometimes kooky ideas. I thank you from the bottom of my heart my soul, and my being. I've enjoyed every second, literally, of my time here in Orange County. And people ask me how I did it throughout the, the month, and I would joke and say that uh, Marianne administers regular um, uh, doses of goat hormones. Um, <laughs> but in fact, it was just the energy that you brought to the lectures and seeing your engaged and involved faces. So I, feel, I, I'm not, I don't usually cry, you know, I feel, but I feel very emotional about this, saying goodbye. Um, well, as... i got to snap out of it. Okay, think of baseball. Okay, as <laughs> think of some of those teams. Uh, as the, you might cry, as the Grateful Dead, this is for Jenna Simon. Famously put it, "What a long, strange trip this has been, but a good trip, I think, a very good one." From kitsch that happens to be quote unquote Jewish, to art that is so profoundly Jewish that it manages to be so even when its subject is. Jesus, to Jews as consumers of art. One wonders what this group will do on encountering her, this work of a Jewish artist in the next room at the Tel Aviv Museum. The photograph unfortunately does not tell that story. From farting frogs, right, to possible female patrons of the arts, grieving, and comforted false messiahs, real rebbes, and their medelach, their goyles, and real rebels and their medelach, from the intentionally funny to the unintentionally hilarious. Jean Paul Gaultier's Hasidic line, if you didn't see that talk. From bird-headed Jews, well, really, griffin-headed Jews, I hope you'll, you'll refer to the bird's head Haggadah in the future, please, as the griffin's head Haggadah, to the cherubs bestriding the place over the Ark of the Covenant in Solomon's Temple, to buckbeak in Harry <laughs> Potter. We've looked at hare hunts, where the hares sometimes win. And even when they don't, they are still alive and running, though in the clutches of their imperial enemies, a well-known and persistent characteristic of Jewish hares, in all times and places. Remember, Mickey Mouse is Disney, and Bugs Bunny, Warner Brothers, nice Jewish boys, right? We've looked at some crazy stuff together. The body of the Torah compared to statues of the body of the Virgin Mary. The bestial Jewish body reclaimed and reappropriated and even almost tamed by Jewish artists. Muscle boys and the penis size of the rabbis. Some of you were there for this. Boys who turn out not to be boys, from the familiar, the completely imitable Ms. Barbara Streisand, as Yentl, the yeshiva boy, to the less familiar. Remember this sweet little Hasidic boy? Is artist Isidore Kaufman's daughter. To the utterly and completely bizarre. <laughs> We've met naked ladies in the Haggadah and in the Mikvah, while their 15th-century husbands wait eagerly for them in bed. la plus ça change, la plus ça reste la même chose. The more things change, the more they remain the same. And we've had naked ladies in the photographic oeuvre of Leonard Nimoy, who could do with a little instruction in laying tefillin. Any volunteers? <laughs> And then we've scrutinized this picture probably more times than you all care to count. With a title like Imaging the Future, Jewish Art and its Role in the Future of the Jewish People, you probably think that you are safe from rabbits, griffins, naked ladies, queer and transgender representation, and the penis size of the rabbis. You are correct but no doubt you imagine that I'm going to show you some examples of art by contemporary Jews like this abstract print worked with Pastel entitled The Beginning by artist Yale Epstein and tell you what I think the trends will be and how important art is to the Jewish soul. But of course, I'm not going to do that. Don't you people know me already? Although you probably thought you were safe from more of that medieval stuff, you are wrong. I'm actually going to use a medieval manuscript to talk about the future of Jewish art. Well, actually, not just one medieval manuscript. You see, this wonderful manuscript, the Ryland's Haggadah, was illuminated in Catalonia in Spain between 1330 and 1340. It's now in Manchester, England, England, probably the only reason to go to Manchester, England, England, across the Atlantic Sea, uh, in the John's Ryland, John Ryland's Library. But it is not an only child, It has, in fact, a sibling. It's slightly older brother, also made in Barcelona only a few years earlier, and currently residing in the British Library in London. The designation brother is not particularly accurate since this manuscript was made first, so it really is the mother manuscript to the Ryland's Haggadah, but I'll keep the title Brother Haggadah since this is how the manuscript is most commonly known. I'm actually bringing these manuscripts up because of this glorious work of art, a Haggadah some of you have glimpsed briefly before, if you attended my talk on Esther, and to which I will be returning at the end of this talk. This Haggadah contains, among very many other interesting features, images of incredibly graphic violence, particularly violence against the Egyptians. Now, you guys, we've been learning together for some time, most of us, this whole month. And what do we know about the Egyptians in Jewish art? Who do they represent? Anybody? The Egyptians in the Haggadah, in art.
0: Oppressors.
1: Oppressors, the contemporary oppressors and enemies of the Jews in each generation. Right? So, um, Pharaoh is only lightly disguised as a version of the German emperor. Here's the bird's head Haggadah with Pharaoh, and you see that the both the banner and the shield on this wagon have the symbol of the Holy Roman Empire, right? So Pharaoh is the German Empire emperor. Or the King of France, right? Pharaoh, with his scepter with the fleur-de-lis and his three-pointed crown, looks very much like King, or as the Catholics like to call him, Saint Louis IX, the one who burned all those Jewish books in front of the Place d'Hotel de Vie in Paris in 1241 with his fleur-de-lis. So Pharaoh is, the Egyptians are, contemporary oppressors. I've mentioned the many beautiful Hanukkah lamps from late Imperial Russia or Poland that are surmounted by the double-headed eagle, the symbol of the state. We can imagine Jews standing in front of one of these patriotic objects and singing the Hanukkah hymn, Mausur, which contains the verse, right? At that time, when you have prepared the slaughter of the blaspheming foe, then I shall complete in song a hymn for the dedication of the altar. To the mind of the 14th century author of these lines, Hanukkah, the dedication of the altar, cannot be truly and wholeheartedly celebrated until such time when God will wreak bloody vengeance upon the latter-day enemies of the Jewish people. So there's a sort of contradiction in terms, a political contradiction. You're standing in front of a patriotic... Minora, almost as if it had an American flag on it, and you're wishing in your hymn for the destruction of the evil empire that you simultaneously identify as the country in which you live. Political sentiments. Now, this is not a work of art from 19th century Russia-Poland. It's from Bnei Brak. Israel, made in 2010 and it sells in Haredi, that is ultra-orthodox bookstores all over the USA. I just saw a copy of this and its companion in Beth Jacob, in the Sephardi Minyan where I davened on Shabbat. So It's even in Orange County. It is most decidedly a work of contemporary Jewish art and as such a barometer of the relationship of Jews with art in a way that it predicts that art is going in a certain direction, at least among a certain stratum of Jews. Its politics is decidedly not a politics of love or of reconciliation. But before you laugh and think, thank God I'm not that primitive, let's think about why this sort of art continues to be created and what a certain mindset that some of you, if not many of you, have in this very room tonight does to further the consciousness that breeds images like this. I would argue that this mindset is latent in many if not most of us and what this work of art does is only to make it manifest And seeing it manifest, we are disturbed by it. But the seeds of this image are present in the consciousness of almost everybody, I am sure, in this room. As I said, I shall return to this image and to the book from which it is drawn at the end of my talk. But in order to understand it completely, I need to trace its genealogy, which takes us back to these manuscripts. One can't talk about the Ryland's Haggadah, on the left, without talking about its brother. The manuscripts are very different in style. The figures in the Brother Haggadah are much more modeled, with dark underpainting, giving the the, 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 the characters an olive-skinned cast, not unlike that of Byzantine painting. The Ryland's Haggadah is much more conventionally Spanish, some French and Italian elements. The figures flatter, less modeled. The decorative elements in the manuscripts are similar. They include illusionistic ribboned frames, rendered with more sophistication in the Brother than in the Ryland's Haggadah, as well as patterned backgrounds shot through with gold and emulations of various fabrics, included in, including embroidered silk and brocade. From a connoisseurship perspective, the Brother is a much more sophisticated manuscript than the Ryland's Haggadah. Its shading is more subtle, It's illusionism is more complete, but that doesn't make it the more interesting manuscript. That distinction, in my humble opinion, belongs to the Ryland's Haggadah because of its more, well, more contentious iconography. Now, you should know that just as the Birds Head Haggadah, which we've looked at, is noted for its bizarre imagery, and the golden Haggadah, which we've also looked at, is lauded for its high-toned, non-Jewish appearance, the brother and Ryland's Haggadot have always been compared for their quote-unquote nearly identical imagery. But I'm somewhat of a contrarian. So when I read in the scholarly literature of the nearly identical iconography of these two manuscripts, I, of course, am interested in the fact that nearly identical is only nearly identical. I look for the differences between them that were overlooked by previous scholars. When I look into these differences, what I discover is startling, and I hope enlightening, about the role of politics in Jewish art. Although both these manuscripts were made in Barcelona between 1330 and 40, and although the Ryland's Haggadah at the bottom was based on the brother Haggadah, these two works of art could not, in fact, be any more different. The brother at top is quietistic, a good egg. But the Rylands, a bad boy, a naughty sibling, socially critical, religiously somewhat radical, and stridently political. We've asked the following question numerous times in our explorations of art at CSP, but it bears asking one more time, what were the patrons of this work of art trying to express via the production of the artists? What were the particular politics of the Ryland's Haggadah, which I describe, as I say, as socially critical and religiously radical, compared with its conservative and quietistic elder brother? I think it's very clear that the place to look if we want to see a Haggadah's authorship acting out, if we want to understand its emotional tone, is in its depiction of the plagues. Think about it. The depiction of the plagues, with the opportunity that it affords to show triumphant Jews and their discomfited enemies, is an excellent litmus test of the activism or the quietism of the iconography of a given Haggadah. Some Haggadot, like the bird's head Haggadah, do not show the plagues at all, which is very interesting in telling. When the Israeli company Kete um, Kete Palfot, put out a pop-up edition of the bird's head Haggadah, which some of you have told me you have, they included the plagues, right? Because what Haggadah doesn't have illustrations of the plagues, that's the coolest part, right? But the original bird's head Haggadah, G- uh, Ashkenaz, Germany, 1300, doesn't have the plagues at all, which is interesting in and of itself. Other Haggadot, like the Golden Haggadah, illustrate the plagues with the same consummately courtly dignity that suffuses the rest of the manuscript, but go the extra mile to add a little special something reflective of the particular sentiments of the authorship. You remember in the Golden Haggadah, the farting frog. Right, um, We talked about this ad nauseum that Aaron hits the head of the frog and the other frogs emerge from the rear end of the frog, right? So that's a sort of little extra special something. Oops, sorry. Let's see what the brother Haggadah does with the plague of frogs and how the Ryland's Haggadah responds. Remember the brother was made first and the Ryland's came after. Hmm, remember the old Wendy's ad? Where's the beef? Well, where are the frogs? I mean, one can't help but notice that what is depicted here is not much of a plague. Indeed, when one compares the treatment of the afflicted Egyptians in the Brother Haggadah and the Ryland's Haggadah, one notes a distinct, almost comic amplification from three frogs to 15. uh, Admittedly, they're not emerging from a froggy posterior, but still, it's a pretty impressive increase, I would say. Right? You see the difference? Pretty obvious. All those scholars who wrote that these two manuscripts were identical were obviously not looking at these manuscripts or they were on crack. Um, what, about, what about the other plagues? Beasts. Well, in the Brother Haggadah, the beasts are pretty horrible. They're kind of beastly, but they're kind of cute also. You kind of want to cuddle them. I don't know. I want to cuddle them, right? Um, they're beastly, but cute. But the Ryland's Haggadah has lots more beasts biting lots more intimate places with Pharaoh having to ward off one who goes for his crotch but ends up biting his knee. Let me show you, you see? This beast, it's kind of a piggy beast, is going for his crotch but Pharaoh has pushed it off and it ends up biting his knee which I suppose is small comfort. (coughs) And while Pharaoh's scowl with his neat little white teeth showing is evident in the brother Haggadah. This over here is a paint chip, so it's not a tooth, right? So he's a little scowl, right? His grimacing mouth literally spreads almost ear to ear in the Ryland's Haggadah. You agree, much more dramatic, right? Pharaoh's crown is knocked askew by a couple of pieces of hail in the Brother Haggadah. Again, hardly a plague, right? We get more, it's like, it's like five degrees below zero in Poughkeepsie right now. That's what I'm going back to you people. Why can't you keep me, right? Um, you know, so, I mean, we get more hail than that in Poughkeepsie. It's not a, it's not a plague, right? Um, but he manages to hold on to his sword, right? We'll talk more about swords as we go on. By way of contrast, in the wintry wonderland of hail in the Rylands Haggadah, He's placed in the extremely undignified position of trying both to steady his crown and pull up his cloak over his head due to the relentless onslaught of divinely precipitated nasty weather, right? You would not mistake these manuscripts as being identical. Does anybody think they're identical? Oh, you? Okay, you're a joker anyway. Okay, so, right. The locusts in the Brother Haggadah are almost lost in the background pattern. One needs almost to engage in a Where's Waldo style locust hunt to find them. They're there. Can you see them? They're kind of, you know, they're here, there are a few of them here. It's very hard to find them, right? There are many more of them, much more distinctly rendered in the Ryland's Haggadah, okay? While the real difference in the volume and intensity of the plagues is patently obvious in side-by-side comparisons such as these, one might chalk these up, these details of these basically similar manuscripts to chance or to mere whim, as scholars have said. Well, it's just chance. One might describe it as chance or whim, but one would be wrong. Evidence concerning manuscript illumination and the testimony of Illuminators Alive Today points to the fact that every extra locust painted was an expenditure of time on the part of the artist, which translated into an extra expenditure of money on the part of the patron. Each amplification of the plagues, indeed each grimace and each gesture is thought out and deliberate. The agenda of the authorship of the Ryland's Haggadah comes most strongly to the fore in the realm of the mood it imposes on the Exodus narrative. It displays a rather bloodthirsty, vengeful attitude with regard to the Egyptians, which pre- presents a striking contrast with the polite and even empathic attitude of the brother Hagada. While the authorship of the Brother Haggadah seems to limit any potentially vengeful feelings concerning the downfall of Egypt and the Egyptians, that of the Ryland's Haggadah amplifies and intensifies such sentiments. Witness the plague of boils. In the Brother Haggadah, Pharaoh Pharaoh and his counselors have lost all dignity. They sit bare-legged, scratching at themselves, grimacing. But the Ryland's Haggadah adds an unprecedented and extreme variation. Besides the much redder and more prominent sores, the lap dogs of the Egyptian courtiers lick their wounds. Now we all know, heavens, some of us may be, dog lovers who allow their dogs to lick their faces. But I'm sorry, in my opinion, letting your dogs lick your diseased, infected festering pustules is a little much even for the most dedicated pet owner. This extra measure of disgustingness pushes the image and the manuscript over the edge into the realm of intentionally amplified hostility. This sort of hostile engagement is a much more intense form of the little extra something added by the authorship of the Golden Haggadah to the Plague of Frogs. Like that addition of the tushy frogs, if you remember them, it amplifies the disgustingness of the plague and by extension the well-deserved suffering of those who would persecute the Jews. Ah. Well-deserved suffering. There's nothing like it if you're feeling persecuted. Um, Or even if you're not. um, The Germans, bless them, have a word for it. Uh, Schadenfreude. That is joy in the suffering of others. It is a concept never much in favor, but always understandable. The Rylands Haggadah oozes Schadenfreude. Check this out. The plague of hail in the Brother Haggadah includes an image of an Israelite herdsman, safe and warm, tending his flocks amid a flowery landscape, see the little red flowers, in the land of Goshen, as above, and e- in Egypt proper, The non-Israelite herdsman dies, remember the convention for death is closed eyes in the Middle Ages, the guy's not sleeping, he's dead, right? Pelted by the relentless hail next to his likewise unfortunately deceased animals, right? So there's a certain, you know, I mean the Israelite herdsman is okay, there are flowers, all the animals are okay, and the Egyptian herdsman is dead, (laughs) right? And all his animals are dead and it's hailing, In the Ryland's Haggadah, the hail has taken over the entire upper register, right, all the way across. The Egyptian herdsman, not dead yet, over here, mourns the death of his animals, lifting his hands in distress. Below him, in an even more flowery landscape, the Israelite shepherd points rudely at him, a self-satisfied smirk on his face. This gesture in the Middle Ages pointing toward your nose was the equivalent of the finger. You know which finger I'm talking about, giving that gesture, right? So it's, it's, it's very, very different. This contrast exemplifies the difference in the treatment of suffering in these two manuscripts. The brother Haggadah tells it like it was in the text, with no more triumphalism or celebration of your enemy's downfall than is necessary. The Rylands Haggadah, however, is the headquarters of schadenfreude, right? They don't let the Egyptian shepherd die so that the Israelite shepherd can point to him and say, ha 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 ha, look at you, bastards, right? I mean, it's very, you know, it's it's quite... should one rejoice in the downfall of one's enemies, the Talmud relates that when the Egyptians were drowning in the Red Sea and the Israelites, just this week, were singing praises of God on the shore, the angels desired to join in the song. im bayam Atem Shira, the works of my hands are drowning in the sea and you angels have the chutzpah to want to sing. God thundered at them. Note that God does not condemn the Israelites. They had, after all been enslaved for centuries they had a right to celebrate the ignominious end of their oppressors punished measure for measure for the drowning israelite the drowning of israelite newborns in the nile but the angels what had the egyptians ever done to the angels this story cuts to the heart of the question of what the exodus was was it an uprising or a liberation How important was Israelite militarism in their salvation? Although the Haggadah unequivocally asserts that the salvation of the Israelites was via the Yad Chazaka of Ezra Netuya, the strong hand and the outstretched arm of God, God's self, Exodus 13, verse 8, recounts that Israel left Egypt hamushim. This odd word may mean in groups of 50, or it may mean that the Israelites left Egypt armed. It says something about the authorship of both the Brother Haggadah and the Ryland's Haggadah that they both chose to depict armed Israelites, both in the scene of the Exodus and that of the crossing of the Red Sea. But as you might now expect, there are considerable, even vast differences in the manner in which this armed Exodus is depicted in each manuscript. In the Exodus scene in the Brother Haggadah, only a few Israelites are depicted with swords and armor. The text caption mentions any, omits any mention of an armed Exodus, focusing rather on the fact that the Israelites heeded Moses in taking their unbaked dough with them for the journey. Only four of the figures wear helmets. Two of these in the foreground wears, also bear scabbards and shields. A third figure in the foreground bears a scabbard, but he is not wearing armor. The bodies of the two helmeted figures in the rear of the composition are obscured by other bodies, hence their weapons, if they were intended to have any, are not visible. One of the armed helmet figure, helmeted figures in the foreground carries doe in a garment on his shoulder, and the figure with the swordless scabbard and without a helmet has a kneading bowl. There are six completely unarmed, unhelmeted figures, five of these white-haired elders, including Moses and Aaron. The sixth unarmed figure is at the far right. He holds a kneading trowel with both hands on his back. The only Egyptian denizen of the city is a trumpeter, sounding the alarm and pointing. The beards of Moses and Aaron in this manuscript are consistently shown as brown or gray. But here, Moses and Aaron are depicted all of a sudden with white beards as if to emphasize their role as prophetic elders rather than as military generals. All these factors, the small number of armed figures, the interspersion of many unarmed ones, the elderly figures of Moses and Aaron, converge with the particular choice of wording in the caption, which emphasizes the Israelites' obedience to Moses in the matter of taking the dough with them, to make the scene less a display of military prowess than a scene of people subject to divine command. The parallel illustration in the Rylands Haggadah illustrates the same event in an entirely different key. Here it is played out literally by a nation of warriors. The text caption explicitly emphasizes the military accoutrements, including the verse, the children of Israel went up out of Egypt armed. In this representation of the Exodus, only one of the 13 Israelites is depicted as unarmed, while at least 11 bear arms. The scene is visually dominated by armed and helmeted men and it fairly, sorry, bristles with armaments at the top. Do you see them? Right? Five Egyptians watch and point from the ramparts of the city. It's almost as if they'd been summoned by the trumpeter in the Brother Haggadah. I know this sounds funny, but I'm actually working on a project now on what I call implied ensuing motion. That is, what is implied to take place after the moment frozen in time in a given illustration. In this case, what we may witness is a sort of funny, a jocular homage, a tribute to the author of the earlier manuscript. The author of the earlier manuscript depicts a trumpeter sounding the alarm, And the authorship of the later manuscript responds, depicting the consequences of the alarm, people appearing on parapets, while at the same time acknowledging its debt to the authorship of the earlier manuscript. This is possible and fun. Is it probable? Probably not. But I put it out there for your delectation. I just love the idea of responding. right? Apropos weapons, or lack thereof. When he was about five years old, my son Gabi pointed out something extremely interesting about the Brother Haggadah always keen to look closely at pictures of knights in armor, he noted that the armored Israelites in the Brother Haggadah, in fact, bear empty sheaths without swords, whereas the armed Israelites shown in the Ryland's Haggadah most definitely bear swords in their sheaths, their pommels, their handles, clearly visible. This might be chalked up to a simple error on the part of the authorship of the Brother Haggadah, or it may signal a kind of ambivalence regarding the idea of an armed exodus. Whatever the case, the Ryland's authorship is swift to correct the error and gets as many swords as possible into as many sheaths as possible. The crossing of the Red Sea affords another opportunity to depict the armed exodus. And again, each manuscript's authorship treats it in a different manner. The Brother Haggadah shows the scene in four bands across the page, evenly divided between drowned Egyptians and saved Israelites. The scenes of the drowned Egyptians, depicted, as I said, in just two bands, is relatively low-key. The Egyptians number only five, and their peaceful faces make it seem as if they are but asleep. The depictions of the Israelites is somewhat strange. Although all wear helmets and bear swords and shields, the majority of the men in the scene shown in the Brother Haggadah are gray-bearded elders. Additionally, women are included among the group. You see women here and women up here. And what spears are visible are thin and so lightly colored to almost disappear against the backdrop. Do you see them here? The white tops of spears? spears? The caption accompanying the illustration first emphasizes trust in God with the verse describing Egypt's downfall moved to the end. Throughout the brother Haggadah, the authorship avoids depicting the victory of the Israelites, lest it appear too vengeful and triumphalistic. But in a depiction of the crossing of the Red Sea, showing the salvation of the Israelites and acknowledging the downfall of the Egyptians is unavoidable. To soften this, The Israelites are shown here not as an army, but as a diverse group of individuals, including women and elderly persons, whose victory is the result of what? Trust in God, rather than military prowess. In the Rylands Haggadah, the crossing is depicted in five bands across the page, a full three of which are devoted to the drowning of the Egyptians. The drowned Egyptians are shown at left grimacing in pain as opposed to the peaceful, almost blissful smiles on the faces of the Egyptian dead in the Brother Haggadah. The Ryland's Haggadah once again diverges from the Brother Haggadah's model, intending toward vengeful themes. The caption emphasizes the salvation of the Israelites only after it speaks of the divine retribution upon the Egyptians. In the illumination, triumphalism is manifest in the amplification of the visual depiction of Egyptian suffering as well as in the characterization of the Israelites as a nation of soldiers. There are no elders here, only young men armed to the teeth, bearing thick spears. There are no women included in this war party. The theme of schadenfreude is continued here with Moses, Aaron, and two of the soldiers, completely contorting their bodies to accomplish this, pointing mockingly at the drowning Egyptians. (laughs) Ha, 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 you got what you deserved, right? The centrality of triumph and vengeance of the Israelites is familiar from the treatment of the plagues in the Ryland's Haggadah, in which Israelite immunity is shown consistently alongside Egyptian affliction in a triumphalistic mode. The small differences between the visual content and the nature and order of the caption verses in these two illustrations creates a shift in political sensibility. While the Brother Haggadah, with its subtle de-emphasis on vengeful themes, privileges the narrative of the trust of the Israelites over the description of the downfall of the Egyptians, that bad boy The Ryland's Haggadah, true to its tendency to greater vengefulness, highlights the retribution upon the Egyptians, and only later tells of the salvation of the Israelites. The authorship of each Haggadah has configured what appears at first glance to be identical material in a manner that is actually quite differentiated. And the emphasis that each has imparted to the scene a feeling of restraint, in the case of the Brother Haggadah, and a heightened sense of militarism and vengeance in the case of the Ryland's Haggadah, its naughty sibling, echoes everything that has gone before in these two books, bolstering the distinctive position of each authorship's larger mental universe and conceptual framework. All this begs the question, why? Why is the Ryland's Hagada so naughty relative to its proper sober, older brother. The Ryland's Haggadah responds to its good, quiet, well-behaved sibling in a broadly reactive manner, which leads one to wonder what circumstances historically led to such a response. Did something particular happen in the communal or familial context in which the manuscript was produced to lead to such a harsh, schadenfreude-filled visual commentary. The fact is that the political sentiments of the Ryland's Haggadah are strangely the sentiments of Jews who were actually relatively comfortable and for the most part secure in 14th century Barcelona. Barcelona in 1340 was like Orange County in 2013. There are no major threats to Jews. We hear about anti-Semitic incidents here and there and people saying things, but Jews live Securely here, that was Barcelona in 1330 and 1340. So all this anger and all this anxiety when you're living in relative comfort and relative security. Yet Jews still felt a strong undercurrent of concern, if not outright fear, that their comfort was temporary and their stability was ultimately fleeting the officers of the government could descend upon them at any moment like Pharaoh and his knights. Their tradition repeated often, like a mantra, that the cycle of persecution would be endless until the coming of the Messiah and that any lull in oppression was merely a temporary phenomenon. As the text of the Haggadah itself puts it, more than one oppressor has stood up against us to put an end to us. Indeed, in each and every generation, each and every generation, they stand up against us to put an end to us, but the Holy Blessed One saves us from their hand. Now, such concerns are completely understandable when a minority has, in fact, been persecuted over and over again. In fact, such fears were proved correct just 50 years after the creation of the Rylands Haggadah with the terrible persecutions of the 1390s and confirmed with the eventual expulsion of Jews from Spain. The mantra-like repetition of such sentiments of existential uncomfortableness year in and year out certainly had repercussions on the Jewish psyche. There were two ways in which Jews could have reacted, in a quietistic, passive, conciliatory way, or in a more aggressive, proactive, militant, vengeful way. They took both approaches in their actual lives. Sometimes Jews endeavored to reconcile themselves with harsh decrees against them, attempting negotiation and conciliation, but at other times they protested, they committed acts of defiance, even martyring themselves. Here we see the famous martyrdom of the woman with her seven t- sons at the time of the Greek-Syrian persecutions, part of the Hanukkah story, Hana Vishivat Banea, as she's called, here illustrated in contemporary garb in 15th century Ashkenaz by Jews whose communities had in fact martyred themselves rather than convert to Christianity. It may be that the authorship of the Ryans Haggadah found the quietistic attitude of the brother Haggadah, its model, to be unrealistic and Pollyanna-ish. You know, Pollyanna, right? Polly what the, the adjective pollyanna means everything's okay, everything's great, right, always find, look at the good, right? It seems to say, you people who made the brother Haggadah are so misguided. You're mistaking a period of relative calm in Jewish-non-Jewish relations for a long-term convivencia, a truce wherein each side lives and lets the other side live. It's obvious to us the authorship of the Ryland's Haggadah, that we Jews are involved in eternal struggle against our enemies and to gloss over it just because there was a lull in outright hostilities must not, cannot, should not lead to complacency. Jews, to arms! Give that old pharaoh, that Spanish monarchy, hell! In spite of the fact that the current monarch is good to the Jews because the next one will invariably be Bad, right? That's what the Rylands Haggadah is saying. So the Rylands Haggadah is quite naughty. But more than that, it's disturbing. At the end of the day, in 21st century America, images like this Jews mocking their oppressors, right? You know, the the dogs licking their swords, right? Saying, you know, giving the finger, right, to the Egyptians. Images like these should make us a little uncomfortable. And it's a good sign if they do, because it means we're no longer comfortable with revenge fantasies, because perhaps we need them less. Nonetheless, we would do well to remember that images like these were created against a backdrop of images like these. The Jewish enemies of Christ, the despised and rejected synagogue. The politics of love, and reconciliation were not really on the plate for pre-modern Jews. Jews were a demographic minority in the European Middle Ages, occasionally envied, sometimes despised, usually misunderstood. In a barrage of, of public images, the pervasively Christian culture within which Jews lived proclaimed the dominance of Christians and Christianity over Jews and Judaism coupled with actual incidents of persecution, this bred in medieval Jewish visual culture a series of responses to non-Jewish majority. There were revenge fantasies, which were disguised very thinly as responses to the ancient enemies of the Jews, Egyptians in the Haggadah, for instance. And there were appropriations of Christian religious imagery to serve distinctively Jewish and often polemic, argumentative purposes. In each of the Haggadot we've looked at during my month in Orange County, political elements are central, responding to events and imagery of persecution and to the general feeling of enmity, of hatred, between Jews and Christians, even at the best of times during the high medieval period. Was this feeling of enmity justified? Recent research into the actual situation of Jews in the high Middle Ages in both Spain and in Franco-Germany, Ashkenaz, right? testifies against the idea that life for Jews in the Middle Ages was an unremitting stream of persecution, a veil of tears. But if you read most medieval Jewish texts, echoing as they do the sentiments expressed in the Haggadah and other rabbinic writings, you would not know this. You would not know that on a daily basis, Jews and Christians got along just fine in medieval Europe. There's a large gap between the reality, the history of medieval Jewish life, sometimes awful, but for the most part, pretty stable, and its perception and description by Jews through the rabbinic lens of in each and every generation they stand against us. We certainly shouldn't expect the politics revealed in the Rylands Haggadah to be palatable uh, to us at the beginning of the 21st century. Whatever the flavor of our American politics, the politics of our contemporary Judaism, reflected in our Haggadot, tend to be liberal. Feminist, emotionally and spiritually questing, concerned with ethics, with loss, with restoration, with equity. The political slant of 21st century Haggadot is by and large a quote-unquote politically correct one, left-leaning, social justice oriented. They manifest a willing eagerness on the part of their creators to embody a universalistic ethos, to put the hurts of the past behind them to live in a world where Jews are liberated and which they will now seek to effect the liberation of other people. But the actual fact is that in spite of the wishful thinking of these progressive Haggadot, words like these still linger in the Jewish consciousness. Leave it to the Jews, often described as the ultra-Orthodox, who call themselves simply Haredim, Quakers or Shakers, those who tremble before God, to produce Haggadot that are simultaneously postmodern, very, very contemporary, and manifestly politically incorrect. Here's this fascinating illustrated Haggadah with which I began, published by the Malchus-Waksberger Press a couple of years back, the book I'm working on when I'm not working on medieval manuscripts, a plum example of what could only be called Haredi neo- neo-realistic kitsch, it's a book with something in it for everyone. It is replete, as I showed those of you who attended my Esther lecture, with images that blend the narrative of the Exodus, pseudo-archaeological detail. See the dead mummy, the mummy behind the statue of Anubis? This is the firstborn plague. Little Egyptian gazebo action, love that, <laughs> right? and particularly apropos to our discussion today, outrageously stereotypical depictions of the Egyptian enemies of the ancient Israelites. The Egyptians are effectively effeminized Arab types, swarthy and hook-nosed with too much eye shadow, obviously reflective less of ancient Egypt than of contemporary Haredi attitudes toward those they see as present-day enemies. This hits home, particularly in the plague scenes, which are played out with a particular viciousness. And surprisingly, for a culture that opposes movie-going, an almost cinematic horror and violence. As I said, it is political and most decidedly not a politics of love and reconciliation. But just as we need to understand the images of the Ryland's Haggadah against the backdrop of the constant mantra of in each and every generation they stand against us, and constant bombardment with images like this, we need to remember that the Haredi world is one still deeply scarred by the Holocaust and that images like this are evocative of memories and images from the camps, images too horrible for me to feel comfortable showing and sometimes for me even to imagine, but for which I will substitute this image. Okay. So when you see this burning Egyptian being burnt alive, there's a stoch being given to the Germans here. Okay, and you have to understand and be sympathetic with that. This does not exonerate the politically incorrect stance of contemporary Haredi society toward non-Jews and the non-Jewish world. It simply points to the context in which such attitudes and the images that spring from them were born. But you know something, folks? It's not just about Haredim, and you know me for a month already, so you know what I'm about to say to you, I say out of love and concern. The consciousness of most of us is infected with this sentiment. We are fed it with our mother's milk, in synagogue, and in Jewish religious education of all kinds. But look, there are two things we can do. We can be so completely overwhelmed by the bad stuff in history that we are paralyzed against seeing a brighter future. Or, we can turn a different page, literally, of the Haggadah and seek therein for wisdom and direction. You see, the one In each and every generation, we must imagine ourselves as if we had personally come out of Egypt. The act of imagination, of visualization, is the tikkun, the healing, the fixing of the other in each and every generation. They stand up against us to put an end to us. Through constantly keeping before us the image of our liberation, through constantly, quote-unquote, seeing ourselves as if. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant that the passage says as if, because we are called upon to engage in this act of imagination in the midst of and in spite of still being enslaved in so many ways of still being, if not actually oppressed, always in fear that we might be oppressed. We are called upon to see ourselves in the eyes of those who have gone before us. And here I return to this image from the David Moss Haggadah with which I began my very first talk a month ago. The eyes of those who have gone before us, in the eyes of our own children and our grandchildren, and most importantly, in the eyes of the others around us, friends and neighbors, Jewish and not all, all without exception, people of the image formed as we all are in the image of that which is eternal and beyond. Thank you. Can we have the lights again, please? There's lights up here. And I'm very happy to take questions. Um, I know it's probably not the talk you were expecting, expecting to see contemporary Jewish art, which I could talk about, but it interests me less than the issues, right, that some contemporary Jewish art, these Karedi, you know, Haggadot raise, because we have this in us, it's just when we see that image of burning bodies in the plague of hell, we say, oh, that's terrible, right? But all of us, I think, I mean, who escaped it? Who escaped their Hebrew school experience, their after-school experience, their religious education, their parents telling them, you know, we're always persecuted, we're always going to be persecuted, right? That's in us, and we, we respond to it, right? Questions, comments, shouts of annoyance, disturbed... <laughs> yes, yes?
0: Mark, in the, in the beginning of the of the lecture, you showed a picture
1: of a very modern, sort of look like a modern group of Jewish uh, yeah. teenagers with, uh, with fried hair, as I call it, etc. Oh, um, that was that, <laughs> <happen>? <laughs> no, that wasn't, that was, they weren't Jewish, that was, from my, I just was I was running through some images from talks, um, that one you weren't at, that was about the Jewish body, and that was Jean Paul Gauthier's a Hasidic fashion show in which he dressed his models up in streimlich and payas and beckishes and, 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 and <laughs> funny stockings and it was so totally I queer and <laughs> totally interesting <laughs> and really really bizarre. I, I okay. felt right at home. You <laughs> felt right right there you are. Right. Yes. Yes, Howard.
0: Um, after the um, Inquisition um, Haggadahs and other Jewish manuscripts had to pass censorship Correct. by the church. Was that also true in Spain with the, with the, era, with the Islamic uh, uh, controlling entity that they have? Oh, it's interesting. Okay,
1: censorship? So, you know, Spain was first under Muslim control and later under Christian control. Um, it's true that with the Inquisition, Haggadahs and other Jewish books had to be uh, censored. But what, what the censors and that was by that time it was printing. So it was mostly printed books and some manuscripts. What, what the censors were looking at, I never thought of this, Howard, actually. This is a really good point. I don't I can't you know, this is the frustrating thing you study things for 23 years and some dude who doesn't study them, and what do you do for a living, Howard? I'm retired, I don't do anything. It doesn't do anything, it doesn't do anything for a living comes up with stuff that makes you think. So, you know, here's the thing. The censors never looked at, nor did they censor images. So you could do whatever the hell you wanted in art, and you would understand. I I happen to think that people understood what I'm pointing out here. It's just that we're we're not accustomed to looking, right? So we don't see it. But the people who ordered that Ryan's Haggadah said, "Give me more frogs. You know, <laughs> let's get those Egyptians looking miserable. You know, right?" But the censors, well, they, they didn't think about it at all. They thought about the words. Now, um, uh, books were not censored under Muslims. No, there was no idea of censorship. Of uh, the, Muslims were very respectful of of um, of the 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 um, uh, 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 the, the Ummah al Kitab, the, the the nations of the book. Uh, and they didn't censor the books of Christians or Jews or Zoroastrians. But it's an excellent question. On the ball, guys, as usual. Yes, sir. What's your name? Victor. Hi, Victor.
0: Why, why do you think that Moses in um, the, the first uh, shows with his stick down? Oh, that's and a very that's an excellent Urenberg, question. Urenberg okay,
1: up. it's an excellent question. So in the movies, Moses always has his shepherd's crook up. But that's not the way you use a shepherd's crook. Anybody raise sheep? <laughs> right? You use it to pull the leg of the lamb so the w- that that is escaping from you. So you always hold an, an authentic shepherd, not for Lancaster, right, um, <laughs> who is not a shepherd, um, you know, holds his crook down and pulls at the lamb's legs. That's all. It's it's actually a, a, an authentic detail. Yes, Gabriel? So I'm, I'm curious, you talk about the uh, fetishism of revenge in the Haredi community today, Mm. but I think we're seeing a lot in the
0: secular Jewish community as well with, for instance, the film *Inglorious Bastards um, (laughs) uh, and us laughing at wouldn't it have been wonderful if the Nazis had been... I
1: totally got off on that film, I have to say. (laughs) I mean, I'm not embarrassed to say it. That was like, to me, *Inglorious Bastards is the Ryland's Haggadah. It is. This is pervasive. That was my point. My point, what I wanted to do was set up this audience to say, oh, those haredim, they're so backward, and you know, we don't have those kinds of feelings. I should have shot a still from, I should have shot a clip from *Inglorious Bastards*. That's a Tarantino film where the Jews get revenge on the Nazis, right? That's exactly what's going on. It's the old story. I'm not saying it's bad or it's unhealthy, right? It's like, that's, I mean, the, the, it's going on in the Talmud when the angels want to sing and God says, shut up, you don't need to take revenge. They didn't do anything to you, right? So, you're right, there's a continuous chain there. I just think we need to get out from under this, but the burden of history is so heavy. It's not like the Holocaust didn't happen. It's not like, you know, I mean, this is so present for us. My, I'm not suggesting that we're all bad because this is part of our consciousness. I'm just reminding us that it's as much a part of our consciousness as it was in the Middle Ages. Yes?
0: Okay, I, I come from from Iraq. Right. And- um, Home of the tongue. My, yeah, and my ancestors were in Iraq for 2,500 years. We lived under Islamic rule of course. from 1,400, from a, approximately what, 1,400, till today. The uh, in, in Islam, on, under, under those conditions, and most recently, in, in the last, let's say, 50, last 70 or 80 years, the Ottoman Empire disappeared right. 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. And because the Ottoman Empire disappeared, there was the control that the Ottoman Empire had over keeping the peace between the, peace between religions. the Jews and, and, the, and the Muslims disappeared. Right. Right. And, and now we have Islam, which is wearing its, uh, quote, ugly head against, against the Jews
1: right. and against and if they don't know it, against Christians as well, right? So there's a, so there's an ex- so that's that's true, right? That there's an extremely wide experience of um, of Jews under Islamic rule. The Ottomans were also Muslims, I must remind right. you, right? So um, there's a there's, Jews have lived under Islamic rule in many times in many places. In certain times there were terrible persecutions. In certain times they just had dimmy status which meant that they had to pay a lot of money and they were second-class citizens and they couldn't wear certain things or ride in a certain way or or sit with Muslims. I mean, it was a, it was like segregation in the South, in a way. Um, a different, slightly different key. So there's a wide exp- uh, uh, range of experience there, too. Now, the fact is that I don't have enough um, uh, manuscript illumination evidence from... Uh, from Arabic from Arab, uh, Arab Jews let's call them right Jews who are Arabs because they speak Arabic and that's their culture. Um, most of the stuff that we have is from the uh, 18th century and 19th century and most of it's from Persia. so there are no illuminated manuscripts that I have to look at to sort of to, to sort of ask the question like how was it for Jews how, what did, did they express their anger or their, um, their, um, their, their feeling of oppression you know, in their art I can't do that. Um, but, it's, but it's certainly uh, because we don't have that kind of evidence. But I'm not discounting their experience. But,
0: yeah. but you know, the point that I want to make is, yes. is, is yes. relative to your comment, is that Islam doesn't permit the depiction of,
1: of people in their... That's not true. That's true. Islam permits the depiction of people, it even de- permits the de- depiction of the prophet under certain circumstances. Teach a class on Islamic art, so I think I can. De- right, test so that. the
0: Jewish manuscripts also took on
1: this. That is color. true. That, that when Islam prohibited this kind of depiction, Jews also behaved in that way. Just the way that our art looks like the art around us. So it's, I mean, yes, it, 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 it's well to acknowledge the, the um, uh, persecutions of Jews under, uh, under Islam. That's very, that's very important, but I don't have much uh, visual evidence. Do you have, que- somebody have a question here? Eyal, and then, and then um, Laura. So this is more of a personal question. A moment yeah. ago you said, I just feel we need to get out from under this. Right. The this meaning? No. Yes. The answer, the question is why? Throughout all, all animal, animals you just have to smack them once, they learn. If they don't learn quickly, right. they're dead. Right. And there's a quote, if you forget history, you're destined I'm to not be- asking anybody to forget history, I'm just asking people to be healthier inside themselves, so that they can, um, they can face the world with a positive rather than negative attitude. I'm not saying not to be cautious, I'm not saying not to be vigilant, I'm not saying to ignore violence and persecution. I'm just saying that I think it's unhealthy to carry around a feeling or a desire for revenge at all times. That's all. That was my point. Um, uh, I have Laura, and then... uh, So two pieces, I I realize I'm going wide with this, but this morning when you talked about the lion eating the horse or the lion, you know, attacking the Right. it was the horse that had testicles. The lion never did in both of those. And what's the symbol of the testicles? I really, I really can't discuss male genitalia. Um, it's something that I don't feel comfortable or in public discussing. But perhaps later we could get together. And have <laughs> No, I'm sorry, not <laughs> I, I apologize. Um, no, of course. The joke is that I've been discussing penises the entire month. Uh, it's, been, it's been a penis fest. Um, I have to think about that. I, th- I think I, I have to think about that. Um, uh, I think the lions do have balls. Also, you don't see them. It's true. Okay, I got to think about that. That's a very interesting question. Can you explain the Egyptian Jew owning a slave? Yeah. Oh, from this. Mo- These are questions for this morning. Yeah. Egypt, Jews owned slaves. Jews were involved in the slave trade in the West. The Spanish and Portuguese Jews were the primary I mean, conduit. And in Egypt, when Jews lived in Egypt, they had slaves. Owning a slave was like owning a washing machine, right? It's not. I mean, this is, there is a, obviously a moral valence, but in order to do what you have to do, doctor, right? In your life, in your house, no, and I, in your career, I know, you needed that. I know, but what do you I mean? I read the rules about it. But right. when did that guy mummify the boy? About when would? Oh, that was the second century. Second century, all right, there was a, we were talking about these Egyptian mummy portraits and there's a beautiful portrait from Fayum, mm-hmm. this uh, cemetery, which is a portrait of a little ten-year-old boy uh, who was buried in the Egyptian fashion by his owner, who was a Jew, and he paid for his burial with all the ad- Egyptian mummification. Uh, Ofra, yeah. And what we call the golden era in Spain, in Spain wasn't golden a- at all. It wa- we were second-right citizens Arambam was the the physician of the uh, whatever he was, but he couldn't stay there overnight, he had to leave the the place. If we are not beaten, we think we have it good. Well, I think the golden age of Spain... Yes, yes. Uh, Offer was saying that the so-called golden age of Spain wasn't so golden because Jews had second-class citizenship under uh, Islamic rule. Um, uh, and that, that if Jews aren't beaten, then they, they consider that they have it good. Uh, the, goal, the Golden Age of Spain was a complicated time. Um, there were, there were so, Jews certainly had second-class citizenship in some ways, but in other ways, their cooperation and the, their neighbors' cooperation with them was unparalleled. So it's, the example is, it's as if you live under a um, persecuting regime, that is, the regime sucks, right? And the regime is, is constantly pressuring you and, and squeezing the life out of you. But you're in, your relationship with individuals um, who happen to disagree with you, uh, perhaps religiously or politically, is still a close relationship. It's, co- it's, as I say on Facebook, it's complicated. I'm not advocating that Jews should be happy to, you know, to, to not to be beaten. But I think that the golden age to characterize the golden age of Spain as worthless um, because Jews were "quote unquote" second class citizens is it needs a little more nuance. But I see where you're going. Ari is giving me the wrap it up signal. Oh. Tiny question about.
0: Man's name is Grendel, I just want you to know. Okay. <laughs> about style, because you know, if if we if we had a choice right now, let's say he was still alive, and we said. Thomas Kincaid, could you paint a religious style yeah. painting versus <laughs> R. Croft? Right. So are there, are there other examples of, in the contemporary time that that, that manuscript came, uh, of, of uh, was it all politically edgy at that time? I see.
1: Yeah, there are some manuscripts in which the uh, illumination is simply decorative. Yeah. But uh, the ones that I choose to look at are the ones that have something to say or are, are reactive in some way. So uh, th- th- that's all, folks. Uh, and I have a few words here.